we're going to get started. So tonight's moderators are myself, Dr. Luke Lopez, and Justin Lucas. This is a list of our guest faculty, Dr. Tornetta, Dr. Eastman, Dr. Sinkowski, and Dr. Lefebvre. We appreciate them joining us tonight. The general uh, objectives for this activity are to review classic and current journal articles and understand why they were conducted, explain how these articles were advanced or uh, literature advanced the practice or historical changes, identify best practices, and help participate in a live discussion about practice defining concepts. For this particular session, we'll be focusing on specifically the identify, identification of the radiographic safe zone for anti-grade tibial nailing, recognizing the anatomic knee structures at risk with anti-grade intermedullary nail insertion of the in the tibia, describe the key findings and methodology of the SPRINT trial with respect to reamed and unreamed tibial nails for open and closed fractures, and finally, define the long-term sequelae of tibial shaft fracture tree with intermedullary nail. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Tallarico. I'm here with Dr. Paul Tornetta, who's our guest author for actually two papers. The first of which we're going to discuss uh, was from the JOT in 2001, Tibial Portal Placement, the Radiographic Correlate, the Anatomic Safe Zone. Thank you for joining us tonight, sir. Hey, Mike. How are you? Um, the first question I had is, you know, what prompted you and your colleagues to perform this study about tibial portal placement? And if you could provide some perspective on that for us. Yeah, sure. You know, back... Back in those days, you know, the dark ages of tibial nailing, um, you know, the, the contra portal was really very commonly used. So people did things in 90-90 position and 90 degrees of flexion of the knee doesn't really allow you to get to the superior portion of the tibia. And if you look at the old contra videos, you know, he had a, a quite flexible, completely slotted nail that, that he did blind and went in, you know, just in that area between the patellar tendon insertion and the proximal tibia. Um, as we developed solid nails and more stiff nails, you couldn't really bang those off the back of the tibia um, so easily. So uh, a number of people started experimenting with moving that tibial portal more proximally, most notably James Carr. Uh, so Jim, you know, started going more proximal, Alho reported, you know, where is the center of the tibia compared to the proximal tibial surface, which is, you know, it's about a third of the way to the back and slightly on the lateral side. So we did a, an initial study where I went to, to a lab and in hyperflexion, nailed a bunch of tibias, you know, with that sort of proximal portal that we were using, but without image, and looked at what kind of intraarticular damage we did. And it was a, a relatively safe zone, you know, it's kind of at the intermeniscal ligament, um, just lateral to the articular surface of the of the lateral plafond and, and off the medial meniscus, as those were the two closest structures. And then, uh, you know, when we presented that, uh, a number of, of my uh, friends, colleagues, and others said, well, that, that's just great, Paul, but, you know, where the hell is that? And, uh, you know, we don't open up the knee to look and see where we're nailing, and you do all these blind, and while that might be great for you, like, we need to know where it is. So, we actually took it back to the lab and identified that portal under direct vision and, and put a K-wire in to say, okay, this is radiographically where that spot is. Um, and that, you know, that has become, I think, a, a very popularized <clears throat> location. Um, I would say that, you know, if you're reading that article and some of these others, you should look at Emil Shemitz's work on the rotation of the tibia because we did those in a true AP position and we were pretty comfortable with that. 
But, you know, in that article, we didn't define what that was. It was the axis of the tibia. And Emil really looked pretty carefully at that and said, you know, because you're so anterior, if you're a little bit off in rotation, that can really translate that portal medially or laterally. Um, and he demonstrated that in a, in a subsequent paper, which I think was important also to understand. So, you know, the perfect AP being maybe about a 50% overlap of the proximal fibula with the tibia. Um, and then, you know, the portal we described, which on average is just lateral to the, I mean, just medial to the lateral tibial eminence on the AP. And basically, it looks like it's in the joint on the lateral is really the perfect starting point. Um, and, and I still use that that today. I mean, you, you, you know, the, the interesting part about that is with super patella nailing, you need to pick the starting point or the trajectory because you actually can't have both. Yeah, no, I've. I, I was trained to do both in residency and fellowship, and I, I do struggle with that still. And I'm always conscientious of what type of AP rotation we have because it can vary and you can just rotate the certain number of degrees and feel like you're off. And so I yeah. and shoot multiple obliques uh, for myself and for the trainees. Um, so when you say these nails were being inserted blind, can you expound on that? Like where there, there was no fluoroscopic use? Yeah, so I mean, when when Kuncher did it, he did it without without fluoro, and and when we did our first study, I I nailed the tibias in the cadaver lab without fluoro, to look at sort of what the damaged area was. Now, you know, I was at that point uh, using you know much like I do now, using the trochlear groove as a as an essentially a, a guide a guide method to slide down into the right area, and that generally puts you in the right spot. Um, you know, obviously. In the OR, I use fluoro routinely, and the trainees use fluoro routinely. Um, but you know, I would say it's it's almost one hundred percent of the time that when I demonstrate the standard semi-extended technique that we use, when I pull the pull the all over into the trochlear group and push it down, it's it's lined up, right? Like it, it it's a a very easy portal to find if you just use reproducible technique. Got it. Is there anything you would have changed looking back? Would you have done anything differently with respect to this study? No, I might have added the rotation because, you know, Emil Shemitz one up me there. It's always nice to have people smarter than you around. So that was interesting for me to see, you know, his changes about something that I, you know, I hadn't really concerned myself with because we were pretty comfortable we were in the AP. But, you know, going back, I, I probably would have uh, would have looked at that a little more carefully to 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 clearly define that AP view to to remove any doubt that that's the right spot. I think it turned out to be correct in the end, but that was an interesting add on. Yes. And then you, you've already alluded to a little bit. Is there anything you stress to your trainees with respect to start site and incorporating this paper's findings? Um, yeah, I think I think the you know, the AP view is not that difficult to get the start point. It's the lateral that's very difficult. Um, so we you know, we still nail in about 25 or 30 degrees of flexion or in full flexion. And in either situation, you know, I've, you don't have to have the starting point and trajectory at the beginning. You have to have the starting point. So we'll typically use, if it's the residence, a nine millimeter all. I use an 11 myself, uh, but a very sharp ball. Get the point where you want it to be, and then just insert that until the, the entire point is in the tibia. Okay. And then you can sort of swing the, you know, the axis to make the trajectory correct. But but I don't start with little flimsy guide wires. I start with a very strong awl and drive it right down into the proximal tibia, you know, with an attempt to be parallel with the anterior tibial surface below the patellar tendon uh, and central, you know, sort of central in the AP view. And then I follow that with a guide wire after I've already basically got a really good start. 
Okay. And will you use the reamer? Will you insert a reamer over that guide wire to finish or do you mean? I put the guide wire all the way down. And then once the guide wire is down, then I, you know, the system I use has a starter reamer. I use that. And then uh, depending on the case, I either ream the rest of the tibia or not. It depends on what I have. Awesome. Well, uh, with the concept of reaming, that'll jump to the different article that I want to reach out to you about as, a, as an author or one of the writing and steering committee on the uh, JBJS 2008 paper, the randomized trial reamed and unreamed intramedular nailing of tibial shaft fractures. Um, so I'm going to start with a similar question. If you could provide perspective on what prompted this study um, for you and your, and your research cohort. Yeah, sure. So, so first off, I, I appreciate you identifying that this was a collaborative effort because this is not my paper; it's a group effort. Um, and you know that the genesis of that paper is Mobandari, and uh, I had done early in my career. I think when I was a resident going into my first year of attendingship, I did a randomized trial of XFIX versus unream nail. Um, that was the early '90s. So, so back at that time, there was a you know the Rhinelander work and other work um, demonstrated that you know the blood supply was less affected for open fractures if you if you didn't really destroy the inside of the canal and the reaming was something that was a little bit harder for the bone to recover from in terms of its endosteal supply so if you damaged the periosteal supply by having an open you know fracture that was stripped and then you also damage the endosteal supply maybe you'd have a problem so it's hypothesized that unreamed nails would be superior in terms of retaining blood supply and potentially decreasing infection and healing of, of severely damaged open fractures in particular. But there was some evidence that it even would help with closed fractures. Um, there were two schools of thought. At that time, there were still people doing maximally reamed nails. If you look back at the early work from Don Wiss and, and others, you know there was a 25% infection rate with grade two open tibias. But they were being reamed to, you know, 12, 13, not minimal ream. Okay. Um, so, you know, there was sort of a convergence of thought of let's let's not do so much damage. And then others who went over to the complete other side and let's try not to damage it at all and just place an internal splint that will allow the bone to heal. So, you know, Ender's nails did great. Like, why won't an unream nail? And and I was uh, an adopter of that thought process because I'm a do no harm kind of guy. And there was data to support it. So, you know, there were some papers that were commensurate with the beginning of the sprint study that were being published from work that was done in the, you know, in sort of the late 90s, um, which was unreamed nails for open fractures. And Roy Sanders had a series, I had a series, or a number of other series, Keating, uh, and others had some series of reamed at the same time. And really the unreamed nails looked like they had a lower infection rate uh, and, and therefore, you know, had some advantages. Now, at that same time, the earliest unreamed nails reported by Tony Russell had a very high hardware failure rate. Now, those nails had a 3.7 screw. So there were, and there were stainless nails. So, you know, there was a lot happening all at once, mixing metals, materials, principles, and, um, and the goal was to provide enough mechanical stability while being biologically friendly to decrease infection rate and not you know, and not have failures, right? And and that was the genesis of the sprint study was to say, well, limited ream seems to be better than reaming. So we don't want to ream all the way up. And, you know, at that time, there were studies that looked at reamed and unreamed nails showing maybe there was a one millimeter difference in the size of the nail. 
So Mo Bandari, when he was uh, a resident, actually cold called me uh, when I was uh, about a week or two before the academy and said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm Mo Bandari, I'm a resident in, in Hamilton, and I'd really love to talk to you about this reamed, unreamed thing. And, you know, we're thinking about getting a trial together. And, you know, he and I met at the academy, and this was, was his brainchild. And, um, you know, I, I helped him a little bit, and a lot of other people helped him as well, but this was his thing. And, um, you know, we developed a steering committee and, and, and generated a reasonable hypothesis um, and then invoked on the study. And the idea was to see, you know, was, was the use of an unreamed, mechanically stable nail with screws big enough not to fail, was that going to be uh, superior in terms of infection rate with open fractures? And would it be superior or inferior or the same for closed fractures? Because now you've got a little less mechanical stability, but a little nicer to the to the blood supply. Okay. Um, so that that was sort of how the the question was generated at the time. Okay. With I have uh, specific questions, but uh -huh. I want to ask about for the big picture is that the the broad question is the impact clinical practice, but the further is did the paper or the manuscript or trial have the desired effect? That you and the and the your colleagues wanted, or do you think that the audience missed the message, or your team? Yeah, so I would say that um, our our hypothesis was, what's the answer going to be? Because I don't think we knew, and and I think most of us understood we didn't know. Now, it was very interesting, and I, I still don't know who the surgeon was, but on one of the planning calls, because, you know, we didn't have Zoom back then, you couldn't see anybody. So if you didn't know their voice, you were totally out of luck. But, um, you know, one of the things that that Roy found and, and that I had found was that while the, the radiographic signs of union seemed to be delayed a bit for these open fractures with unreamed nails, the clinical picture predicted success. So I, I was of the opinion that as long as someone was doing well clinically, I wasn't revising them or doing exchange nails or dynamizations. And Roy had done similar things. So there's two papers out there that sort of say it's a different follow-up radiographically, but clinically they're the same. And if you hold off and, and watch, they're going to be fine. And our union rates are both very high without revision surgery. Someone on the call said, you know, because I, I had proposed a nine-month prohibition against secondary intervention unless there was a, a notable bone defect uh, or or gapping at the fracture from distraction, right? So if you if you had a, a technical error or if you had a lot of bone loss, you could revise it earlier, but otherwise you had to watch it. Okay. We ended up compromising on six months, but but that came from you know someone on the call saying, "Hey, Paul, this sounds great, but we all know the ream nails are going to do better," and you know the. The answer to that was you don't belong on this call, right? Because if you don't think there's equipoise, you probably shouldn't be experimenting on human beings. So I still want to know who that was because it really pissed me off. But in the meantime, um, you know, there was a thought that, well, we know better. And, you know, it, when you looked at, um, at studies at the time, the, the relative risk reduction, predicted relative risk reduction was going to be 60% by using ream nails. And there were some of us, myself included, that didn't believe that was true, that believed the unreamed nails would perform as well or in open fracture better. Um, so we were very happy to randomize, but other people did it because they wanted the answer. And, and that ended up putting us in a very underpowered position because what was happening in the world at that time was people were placing unreamed nails to avoid infection. And then at three months, if there wasn't callus, they were going in and exchanging them. Okay. And then all of those were defined as non-union. Right. By definition, we had to do something to gain union. Therefore, it's a non-union, 
even though if you watch it, it's not a non-union. So that was where the prescription against secondary intervention for six months came into play. It was because we, we you know, finally argued logically that to get the answer, you actually have to establish that you've developed a, a real non-union, not just something that doesn't look healed on x-ray. Okay. And that was, that's something that was uh, always highlighted to me by my <laughs> residency mentors in Philadelphia, that six-month timeline. Was, was there, you, it sounds like it was a debated, a hotly debated timeline or time. <clears throat> yeah, it, it was. We started, the initial protocol was nine months, and we, we backed off to six months to, to gain agreement. Okay. See, I can compromise. Even people think I don't, but you know, every once in a while, you got to compromise. Um, do you think that the results of this uh, with the reaming versus reaming is that relevant today? And you know, I I have not yeah. seen an unreamed nail starting residency in 2012. Yeah, I still do unreamed nails, so I I do think it's relevant. Although, you know the. the I think that the messages from the sprint study, the most important things from that study were the logistics, um, some of the things that we put in place, and, and a lot of the credit goes to Gord Guyat, who, you know, is a methodologist in, in Hamilton, um, you know, just about how we did the study, that, you know, we had an adjudication team, we had a, a large number of committees on there that, you know, are all replicated in, in, in most of the major prospective work that's being done today. But was very new to orthopedics at the time. So there were five of us on the adjudication committee, and you know we we got binders um, for our meetings, and you'd have to go through the binder and look at and, and adjudicate every infection, every secondary intervention, reviewed all of the X-rays, and you know at the end of the study, the binder packets were taller than six foot five, I think. So you could stand next to your binder packet; and it was it was way taller than you. Um, and and very interestingly. One of the arguments that I made, I think, really kind of um, pushed the study to an outcome that was clinically potentially different than what um, than what I would have liked to see. But you know, data is data. So you know, part way through, as we we're adjudicating it, remember, an event for that trial was an intervention to gain union. And one of the problems we saw was that uh, there were some non-titanium nails in play. And the unreamed non-titanium nails had a 12% screw failure rate, where the titanium had about a 3%. And so we saw a fair number of screw breakages, you know, as we're waiting this six months for something to heal. And so we were faced with the paradox of if you were a surgeon and at six months you wanted to do something, you didn't want to exchange nails, so you dynamized the patient, that was an event, and the patient healed. But if you were a surgeon who was a watch and wait, maybe you waited on that same patient at six months and the screws broke and the patient healed. It's the same thing, right? So one is an autodynamization, the other is a planned dynamization. But in both cases, if you lose all the fixation on one side, you have a dynamic construct. So I actually brought that up to the group and said, look, I don't really know what we should do about this because if you're smart enough and you know what the future holds and you pull the screws, it's an event. But if you just leave it alone and the screws break, it's the same patient. It's not an event. Like, what do we do? Yeah. And we had we had a, a fair number of, I think, very well thought out discussions and ended up deciding that uh, if you if you if you if your screws broke and dynamized the concert, so not one screw, but, you know, everything on one side broke 
that that would count as an auto dynamization and therefore because it was equal to a dynamization it was an event Granted, it, it has no clinical impact on the patient, whereas oh, a dynamization, you go under anesthesia, right? So there's, you know, that was sort of the debate we had. We ended up deciding to include it, and you know, that's what drove the outcome of the study. If you were to take those 41 patients, I think it was 41 or 42, if you took those 41 patients out who had autodynamization, then you wouldn't have seen an advantage to the ream nails. And interestingly enough, you know, when you look at the open fracture group, and there were I think 400 and maybe 433, something like that, patients in the open fracture group. Um, across the board, there was a slightly lower number of complications for sort of everything you looked at. Now, the P was less than, I think it was like 0.17 or 0.2, something like that. Uh, wasn't statistically relevant, but there was some, you know, some sort of trend that, that maybe the unreamed nails, if you had a larger study, would perform better. Clearly, that could have gone the other way, which is why we don't just decide things based on trends. Um, but to me, uh, the the logic of the unreamed nail and open fractures still made a lot of sense, and I still use that technique today. And I, and I do think it's a bit safer uh, than ream nails, as long as there's there's room, and you can get a nail in that's big enough to get to 4.5 titanium screws, which don't don't really fail. Gotcha. Okay. No, that uh, I appreciate that. <clears throat> That's why I love doing these is talking to authors such as yourself. Um, uh, you know, is there, you mentioned the inclusion of those events, the autodiamondization in, in the paper, the manuscript they talk about at the first interim analysis of the first 330 patients. Was that decided at that time? Because it was showing- Well, it was decided later. Um, that, that first interim analysis was, you know, again, and, and Stephen Walters, our statistician, and Gord Gayat, and Mo Bandari, and Emil Shemitz, um, you know, the, the level of the caliber of people that that I was lucky enough to work with were were really everything was well thought out. So we had a planned interim analysis, and as I said, you know, the the initial um, the initial estimate was a sixty percent relative risk reduction, and and we weren't anywhere close to that. And the reason we weren't close is because people were waiting six months. To do their their secondary interventions and a lot of them became unnecessary so we were going to be vastly underpowered which is why we had to bump up the numbers gotcha and <laughs> second to last question is would you have done anything significantly different with the study design or the the publication how you presented the data um well i think in, with the study design i would have waited nine months I, I was a big proponent for waiting nine months um and I think in the way that we presented the data, all of the information that I'm sort of citing right now is is there. the The problem is I don't I don't know that we I don't know that we were able to within the space constraints explain that level of detail and decision making. Yeah. Um, it's all there. I mean, there's nothing I'm saying that's that's new to anybody who's read the actual paper. But you know, for the abstract readers and the only table lookers. Um, you know, some of this is is sort of lost on them, but I, I think that uh, I think that for its time, it was a, a very impactful study. Um, it did demonstrate, you know, why big numbers are important. You know, if you looked at the first, uh, and this was a separate paper that that Sheila Sprague, uh, who's an amazing researcher and now PhD, who's up at at McMaster, worked on with us. Um, you know, looking at at what would the sprint study have looked at at fifty patients or hundred patients? Because at those time. A randomized trial of 100 patients was a big number. 
And, uh, you know, if you looked at the sprint study in those times, it, it, it strongly suggested, right, that unreamed nails would have been better. Like, you know, the forest plot crosses zero, but it's one of those trend things where everybody at that time would have said, yeah, if you get more patients, it'll be, it'll be unreamed. Mm -hmm. And it's not until we hit 800 patients that we're actually back solidly on the other side of that forest plot curve. So, you know, it, it really, it, it taught us, me in particular, from working with these great people, a lot of lessons around how to do proper research. Um, you know, we, we, we all taught each other little things along the way. And, and I think as a whole, it, it really pushed the level of orthopedic trials to a completely different level. And, and for that, I'm, I'm very proud of, of the work that was done by all of us. I think that's that those lessons are probably in the end, more important than the actual findings in the trial. Well, thank you. And how, when you teach trainees in your program and at courses, how do you incorporate this into that teaching today in 2023? Yeah, I mean, we, we do, uh, you know, in our residency, we, we do journal club once a month, but we do an evidence-based journal club. And, and you know, we have a, a form that each of the residents has to fill out. And we do only two studies. So it takes about a half hour to really dissect the crap out of a study. Um, you know, I run a couple a year. I go to most of them. Uh, but, you know, when I, when I give the residents their articles, they both really look good and one of them sucks. And, you know, the, the trick is to understand why a study is good and why it's bad. So all of the lessons that, you know, that I've learned through the course of, a you know, doing a lot of work with a lot of smart people are sort of in that form. You know, the, the questions that we ask, you know, what was the hypothesis? You know, how, how was it generated? How were, what are the inclusion exclusion criteria? Is there a bias in it? You know, are the results commensurate with other things in the literature? Right. When you look at at some trials, you say, wow, this is very convincing. You know, the best trial infection rates are four times higher than they should be. Right. So if you compare four times higher with three and a half times higher, do you actually want to believe that that applies to your patient? Probably not. So, you know, there's countless examples in the literature of, um, you know, of, of various papers that sound exceedingly convincing, but have fatal flaws. And really, my goal as an educator is to teach my residents how to educate themselves once they leave. So it's really teaching people how to effectively read primary literature. Awesome. Well, I sincerely thank you for your time on a Saturday night. And thank you so much, Dr. Tornetta. Yeah, my pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. All right. Hello, everybody. I'm Justin Lucas. We're here with Dr. Jonathan Eastman. Uh, to, to, to talk about a series of papers related to tibial diaphysis fractures, uh, the first being the retropatellar technique for intramedullary nailing of proximal tibia fractures, a cadaveric assessment, and the second being the retropatellar portal as an alternative site for tibial nail insertion, a cadaveric study. Uh, so I think these two papers definitely go hand in hand. Uh, and to start us off, uh, Dr. Eastman, if you could tell us a little bit about what prompted you to perform these studies back in 2010 uh, and maybe give us a little bit of historical perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's really interesting looking back and it's uh, a little bit humbling. I think it's already been 13 years ago now that these things were coming out because it feels like it was maybe just last year. But I mean, I think uh, I was a junior resident uh, on the trauma service uh, with Mark Lee and Brad Yu. Who were two of my mentors early on and um, you know 
know, I think around that time there were there was a big push to think about more minimally invasive techniques um, and trying to, I think, deal with some of the problems with proximal third fractures in terms of malalignment. And so um, we got some funding from Smith and Nephew and we were able to get some cadavers and instrumentation and then try to figure out a little more details about this technique. You know, was it possible? Could you get to the right start side? And you know, the things we investigated in the study to see about could you get parallel with the cortex and then building. I mean, we kind of mirrored this study off of uh, Dr. Tornetta's previous studies about the intraarticular structures um, and was it safe? You know, I think um, there was a lot of ideas, a lot of unknowns about this new technique uh, that we kind of heard about, learned about, and had tried, but there was really no uh, backed up any evidence about it. And so uh, the main reason was to see, like, are we doing something that's appropriate, I think, for that patient. And so with the results you found, I think the main points are, one, that you could safely get an implant in the appropriate place uh, through the retropatellar portal, and then the second being that there was minimal damage to surrounding structures about the knee with the technique in particular. So knowing those two factors at that time, uh, how did it affect your clinical practice? Well, I, I think it kind of validated it. I mean, again, I think with a lot of hyperflexion, um, you know, you can still treat proximal fractures with that technique, but you had to augment, right? I mean, clamps or blocking screws, a lot of things that had to come. And I think still, even with the technique, you have to use uh, many of those um, augmentations, but I do think that it, it added to it. And so I think it did uh, validate kind of the early thoughts of, is this technique valid? Can you use it? Um, and kind of, is it safe? And so I think the paper showed that. I mean, I think the one highlight was the intermeniscal ligament. Um, I'm still not quite sure if we know what that actually does. Um, I know there's been some sports medicine type studies that have looked into it. Um, and so even though there's, uh, you know, with I think what we accept as a safe zone for the start site, I still think there's a, an issue with damaging structures and uh, each patient's need, no matter which technique you do, because we're always going to the same kind of uh, start site right there. But I think the, the one thing that we didn't know was the patellofemoral joint. You know, I think that's still something we don't know about. I think that, um, you know, everybody's knee is a little bit different in terms of the soft tissue integrity and how mobile their patella is. And so even if you can get to the start site, I think people have that have done this a few times have found that some knees are very pliable and the patellofemoral joint is really accessible by the trocar and some it's very tight. And then some even have to extend it more into a, a formal parapatellar arthrotomy instead of just an isolated uh, superior incision. And so I think a lot of us still wonder, do we need to do it for all fractures? I think that's evolved to that. Um, I think that we still don't know the long-term outcomes of having um, sustained pressure on a chondrocyte in that joint you know, for an extended period of time. There okay, so could you tell us a little bit about the study design as far as being a cadaveric study? Uh, how you arrived at the concept of using matched pairs and your sample sizes um, in regards to what you thought was appropriate and how that would translate to clinical practice? Yeah, uh, I think we I mean, we mimicked this really off of previous studies done by Tornetta in terms of the design, you know, in terms of even how to grade damage to the structures, you know, but I mean, I think a power analysis was done, you know, about the number that we needed 
to show any sort of difference. Um, it would look great to have uh, matched limbs just to know is there a difference from side to side or patient to patient, person to person. And so I think um, it was kind of easy to set up it that way, but I think like any study, it had limitations. You know, I think as we're trying to use um, a cadaver for that, I think we all realize that sometimes cadavers can either be stiff or arthritic in terms of the joint, or sometimes the, the tissue is, is very mobile. That's not really uh, physiologic that we'd see in clinical practice. And so I think some of those uh, limitations are there. Um, I think one of the limitations that is prevalent is uh, also uh, the fact that um, with gross dissection, you know, you insert the nail, you do it, and then you dissect. And you're trying to see limitations or, or distances from, you know, the portal to a structure. And I think sometimes with dissection, things aren't quite the, the same place that they are without that dissection. So I think some of those um, maybe we're splitting 0.1 or 0.2 millimeters, but I think some of that can be uh, a little bit hard to interpret when you're disrupting the normal relationship of an anatomic structure. Once you enter a knee joint and move tissues out of the way, I think it can alter or impact some of those measurements in time. I think that's a really great point. And so if you were going to redesign this study in 2023, uh, comparing maybe different techniques for intramedullary nailing of the tibia, uh, is there anything you would do differently from a study design standpoint to contrast some of those difficulties or weaknesses that you may have had in the study that you performed? Yeah, I think those are known limitations, you know, in terms of the dissection for cadaveric models. And I don't really think you can get around those. Um, you know, I don't think that's a candidate for a CT study because I don't think the anatomy they looked at would uh, it would be too hard to do measurements. I mean, I think one thing that we actually we, we talked about kind of on the drive down to the lab, and we had talked about it before, but we also had the idea of measuring the pressure, right, of, of the patellofemoral joint, and uh, we were very interested in that, but. Uh, when we show up to the lab, we had this Fuji film that we could wrap around the trocar, but it really wasn't uh, appropriate. It was kind of inaccurate and uh, just suboptimal. And so, I mean, I think it would have been great to supplement the data that's already there if, if we could have added that. Seems like some of the motive behind your study design was to uh, demonstrate the ability to use the retropatellar technique to fix problem fractures, particularly proximal third tibia fractures, which are known to have deformity uh, and uh, difficulty achieving alignment when intramedullary nailing. But it seems like currently the retropatellar technique may be the favored technique for nailing of all tibia fractures. Uh, do you think that um, this is a, a reliable extrapolation of your results or are there times when it shouldn't be used? Or how do you kind of decide uh, what you're gonna do? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting uh, question because, I mean, I think one of the implications, uh, maybe not the intended use, was it kind of seemed like it just caught on fire, you know, and I remember getting a little bit of flack in my fellowship interview about if this was your tibia, diaxial tibia, would you want this technique? And I was like, oh, boy, I don't know, you know. <laughs> um, and so I think, uh, you know, it's been, it's been extrapolated to use it for all tibias. Um, and I think besides the things we talked about, I mean, one of the other big um, proponents of this, you know, semi-extended technique was put by Dr. Tornetta, and it would facilitate imaging and positioning and reduction techniques, you know, for any fracture, really. Um, and so I think that got also kind of lumped in together, you know, and so 
I think people have used that those benefits and they've taken it down. I think the you know concern for open fractures, I mean involving the knee joint is also a concern, although it's been shown to be relatively safe. And so um, again, I think all these things are out there. I think they're all alternatives, you know, for uh, for techniques. It doesn't always have to be. There's extra synovial or extra articular approaches. Um, and even one of my partners here, Tim Maker, I mean, it's almost like the the thing with a DHS versus a nail for an intertroch. I mean, I think he'll still do a, a standard parapetal incision with the knee flexed. I mean, just for to show residents and fellows that that's still a technique and it's not just a reflex, that this is the, the chosen technique without any thought behind it. And so, I mean, I think a lot of things go into it. And I think as, as we educate and keep training younger surgeons, have knowledge of old techniques and reasons why we choose or don't choose uh, more contemporary uh, techniques. But I think all these things are there. And I think it's not just, there's only one approach because there's gonna be patients where it's not possible. And so you better have an option B or option C um, that you're gonna have that option to, to treat a patient. Excellent. So uh, for the spectrum of the audience out there, you mentioned you did this study as a resident. Uh, looking back on it now, 13 years, um, anything that you want to mention about, you know, doing these kind of studies or uh, when you look back on the results, anything that you would critique about it in particular, any final thoughts? No, I mean, I think it, it was eye-opening for me uh, just because this is the, kind of the first big study that I was involved with as a resident. I kind of fell into it, you know, just happened to be in the trauma service and was talking with my attendings about this. And um, But it kind of showed me kind of these things that we, you're not familiar with, you know, these different techniques. Um, if you just start asking questions or thinking about like why we're doing what we're doing or how we're doing and is it, you know, been shown to be safe or can we do it better? I mean, I think all those techniques are driving uh, you know, research thoughts and, and trying to push the field forward. I mean, I think a lot of my studies since then have been based upon clinical questions um, that I've had or colleagues have had and just uh, trying to identify a knowledge gap or a thought gap uh, to get an answer for it. And so I think it was really eye-opening uh, to be involved with it kind of from conception and then all the way through and then seeing even some of the on-the-site problems, I mean, it seemed like a very simple thing. Put in a, a start wire, make a measurement and go. And it wasn't, there were some nuances to it. And so I think it just kind of highlighted the whole scientific process and study design um, to try to anticipate problems like that moving forward. And so I think it's very applicable for me and helped me kind of going forward. So I think uh, a lot of stuff to be learned. And again, just like we talked about earlier, I think there's a lot of things that we can even take from the study Great. Well, I think those are some awesome thoughts on two papers, which I think were pretty eye-opening uh, and relative to what we do today in common practice. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Hi, I'm here with Dr. Mark Swinkowski to discuss the 2008 JBJS article titled Randomized Trial of Reamed and Unreamed Intramedullary Nailing of Tibial Shaft Fractures. Thank you, Dr. Sienkowski, for joining us. My pleasure, Michael. Thanks for asking me to do it. Um, we wanted to start out by asking if you could provide perspective for what prompted you and your colleagues 
to perform this study in well this is a history uh that goes back before your time you're a little little young but there actually used to be a question about what was the best way of treating tibial shaft fractures which i think we've kind of put to rest in terms of it being an intermediary nail and we kind of moved from uh, external fixator and flexible nails and had figured out how to uh, appropriately insert locking bolts. And so the, the question, which was raging at the time, was ream versus unream nails. Actually, it was was raging both for femoral shaft fractures as well as uh, um, for tibia fractures. So um, this was at a time when uh, uh, Mo Bandari was really getting started in his uh, career. Uh, and so we, we did the... The appropriate thing, which we tend to do really regularly now, is we did a literature review and found out that uh, with this question of ream versus unream, there was a bunch of smaller trials. I don't remember the number, five to seven, maybe something like that, but the rates of reoperation differences ranged from 12 to 49%, something like that. So we had enough information from these small trials to know there was a real question. And then we did some survey work to find out uh, amongst members of the OTA that there was a real question. And that's what we used to plan the trial. So this was all going on in, boy, I wanna say 2005 and six, something like that. Uh, and then as you can see, we, we were able to do this trial and get it published in 08 and then many subsequent publications from this data set. Do you think that the question was answered for in your in you in the in the committee's mind yes um it wasn't answered in the way that we anticipated um but um it was it was definitely answered um for 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 close fractures for sure it it answered that, that reamed is better mostly in part because of larger bolt size and the whole issue with bolt breakage and autodynamization is lower when you have bigger bolts and bigger nails which you get with reaming. A little less clear for open fractures, um, maybe some trending towards uh, lower rates of combined uh, reoperation for unreamed, but only a trend. And so I think the question was answered, but we, we'd hope to have a clear answer on both, but we didn't quite get that. And do you think that has had the effect on clinical practice that you you anticipated or do you think the audience missed the message no i i think the audience understands the message and i perhaps the the biggest message and the most clear message is that the protocol stated that we weren't allowed any of the clinical sites and investigators weren't allowed to um reoperate before six months which is the major finding, I think, of the trial, that if you wait and don't react to a x-ray that's showing slow healing at three to four months, you really are not going to need to reoperate on, on many of these fractures. So that that's the biggest message, I think, from the trial. Um, but I think that the trend towards using ream nails whenever possible has clearly been the standard of care ever since the SPRINT trial was published. Are there, are, is there data or um, items in this manuscript or subsequent ones that you think are 
under highlighted or glossed over in your opinion? Under highlighted or glossed over? Um, uh, the, the glossed over part, there, there was a subsequent um, uh, reanalysis of the data looking at predictive factors with multivariable analyses. And one of the things that came up to be significant was the nail material. Uh, stainless steel leading to more reoperations than titanium. But when you really look at that carefully, that's not the materials as much as it is the smaller bolt size, which was a manufacturing issue at the time. So it's really just that the bolt breakage, again, happens much more commonly with smaller diameter nails and smaller bolts. So I don't think the nail material uh, issue is an issue. So it was a confusing finding. Um, second one in the um, the uh, multivariable analysis is no effect of smoking. That was a little bit surprising. Uh, patient smoking affecting the the reoperation rate, and uh, I think thankfully that's been relatively underemphasized, which is which is a good thing because we certainly know that smoking impacts outcomes in animal models and in other clinical sites. So I'm not really sure how that came about, um, but uh, thankfully that one's been a little bit underemphasized as a finding from this uh, trial. Mm. Fair enough. Mm. Um, are there specific strengths to any part of the study methodology design um, or, or other that you are particularly proud of, fond of, that you want the audience to understand or have a perspective on? Yes, well, um, this really was, uh, I would say, you know, we had in the orthopedic trauma community, we'd been doing some randomized trials, but we weren't experts at it. And many of those trials that myself and others published were underpowered, and we didn't have good use of adjudication committees that were blinded to treatment arms, et cetera. Uh, and this was the first trial where we involved Gordon Guyatt, who is one of Mo Bandari's mentors at McMaster. And Gordon is a internationally known clinical trialist. He's an internist. And he'd been working mostly in cardiology trials. And he'd done one surgical trial, I think, with lung cancer. But we were able to entice him to the challenge of surgical trials. And the way this trial was designed with adjudication um, of um, the uh, outcomes by a, a panel of uh, blocking off uh, areas of the x-ray so as to not lead to bias in interpreting union, uh, et cetera. I think this was a, a real major advance in trials and we've tended to use that in all of the large, larger national and international trials going forward. So adjudication committees, blinded outcomes assessment uh, and, and big, big numbers uh, in this case, three nations, twenty some centers, um, has been uh, has been what we've done in the orthopedic community going forward. Thank you. Is there, you know, in the 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 other side of that question, is there anything that you would say you and the committee had wished you had done differently in retrospect? Uh, well, one of the things I wish we would have done differently is to not have these lengthy adjudication committee calls it lasted seemingly forever with people arguing about whether or not this 
this was uh, healed or not, uh, that kind of stuff. But no, I, I think, um, you know, uh, our original, if I recall right, our original target enrollment was 1,400, and we didn't quite achieve that. Uh, so I wish we would have been able to do that and had more centers involved. But this, you got to remember, this was, you know, quite a long time ago, 15 years or so. Uh, and now we've got many more centers who are experienced with doing these trials and are willing to do the trials and understand the benefit. So, yeah, I wish we would have had a few more centers, a little bit larger power, but that's a pretty damn good trial, I think. Hmm. Yes, sir. It was often, you know, cited to me by um, mentors and residency about the six month uh, time for non-intervention. And that's, that's something that sticks to me in my five years of residency training. And I try to hear, I did hear to now as an attending. My final question on that note is, how do you, when you teach trainees at this point, how do you incorporate this paper and this trial into your teaching of trainees in 2023? Yeah, well, it, you know, the, the, I guess the whole field has evolved and incorporated the knowledge derived from this trial and other, other trials that when I'm teaching residents and fellows now, the question of what to do for a tibial shaft fracture really doesn't come up. It's a ream tibial nail, unless it's an exceptional soft tissue injury, in which case we might do temporary XVX or a small um, intermedullary unreamed interlock nail. So there's not much. It just kind of is what people do now, um, which is where where you'd like to to get. I think with a with a trial that has influence and it certainly. You know, I think the total cost of this trial were in the range of $3 million sponsored by uh, the NIH uh, and uh, NIAMS and our branch and Canadian Institutes of Health and a, a Dutch agency, et cetera. I think, I think the public got its money's worth out of this by creating a standard, which I think nearly all of us agree upon uh, for a tibial shaft fracture. We argue about, you know, suprapatellar, infrapatellar and stuff like that, but I don't think we argue about what's the best treatment for a tibia shaft fracture much anymore. Well said, and I appreciate you uh, sincerely taking the time today and thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Always a chance to go go, go back down history, history's trail for old thank guys you, like me. <laughs> Hi, so my name is Luke Lopez uh, and I wanted to thank uh, Dr. Kelly LeFay for joining us to talk about uh, some of her important work uh, looking at tibial shaft fractures. So thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So you um, so the first paper that we're going to talk about is is entitled Long-Term Follow-Up of Tibial Shaft Fractures Treated with Intermedullary Nailing that you published in uh, JOT in 2008. Um, what, uh, you know, <clears throat> what was going on with the, the state of the literature at that time that uh, was a gap that you guys were trying to address with this paper? Yeah, great question. So um, this actually was a paper I started working on as a resident. I was a resident at in Vancouver um, at University of British Columbia, where I now work. And the senior group there, including the senior author, was really on the forefront of research around intermedullary nailing. In fact, they published a small RCT on reamed versus unreamed nails, both in closed and open fractures of the tibia uh, in JBJS. Um, in uh, at about 10 years before this. So they'd long since been treating 
uh, tibias with intramedullary nails. They were really on the forefront of that practice change. So had a lot of interest in these kind of remaining questions around uh, the use of that fixation and, and what the implications of it were. And what was really missing from the literature at that stage was, was what was the long-term sequelae of that injury, um, both as it relates to general function and then specifically around that always burning question of anterior knee pain uh, with treatment with intramedullary nails. We had the benefit at this stage, and this study was one of the studies really that changed how we collected patient information and how rigorous we were with that. Uh, but this was a study um, that benefited really from the fact that we had a very uh, complete long-term uh, database of patients. So we um, had a ready resource in order to be able to contact and try and recruit patients. Um, so the functional outcome information was collected retrospectively um, interestingly, though, this did cue was one of the studies that cued our change to starting to collect all that information prospectively uh, in a similar population. So we identified the patients uh, from the database and then being the ultra keen resident I was at the time, I used all kinds of resources to try to um, identify uh, contact information for patients. And then <clears throat> we actively recruited patients to come for long term follow up. Uh, what was the most significant or maybe the most surprising finding? Well, I think uh, true to any kind of paper like this, like there's all kinds of bias in this paper, right? Is that, well, you start with 250 eligible patients and then how many of those patients are able to or willing to follow up with you and what's the bias with that enrollment is probably the biggest um, um, element. And so we know there's enrollment bias uh, in any study like this. And I think for this type of study, there's probably a bias related to patients that uh, had a more significant functional deficit. They're more engaged with and interested in their um, injury because of the disability it still causes and more interested in having that follow-up associated with the study. Um, but, you know, barring that about the bias, to me, the, the biggest takeaway and what's really kind of um, influenced my ongoing research career is the long-term functional deficit that patients have after major orthopedic injury. I think it's something that, um, you know, historically in the literature and in our training, we don't talk about very much. We look at, well, the x-rays healed or the patients recovered or they're back at work. But if we're more nuanced about how we look at function post-injury, there really is long-term implications um, that are related to injury, that are related to treatment choice, to complications in recovery. So the long-term disability was the one component. And the other kind of, to me, very surprising component, but now having a lot more experience in my own practice, um, you do see is that the degree of long-term swelling. So mm -hmm. we had a very high rate of both patient reported and clinical exam evaluated swelling in these patients. Mm -hmm. So speaking to, you know, an unrecognized phenomenon related to venous injury or undiagnosed below knee VTE events or, or other components that are likely driving that, that problem with chronic swelling. So um, sort of an unresolved issue following lower extremity trauma. How do you use this outcome information to counsel patients and also then when you're teaching trainees about sort of what the long-term sequelae of these injuries are? 
So that's really interesting. So I, I don't use um, necessarily the information from this paper, but what I use routinely um, is the information or the graphical representations from some of our works on the long-term, we call it the long-term trajectory um, of functional outcome following injury. And so um, I always tell residents when they're thinking about uh, a patient's outcome or about designing research, it's not just about how you measure outcome, uh, which to me is the most important part of design of any, of any research, um, but when you measure it. So it's a moving target uh, throughout, we know now, a very long period of time following injury. Um, so I use that little graphical representation that's very similar for tibial nails, for tibial plateaus. It's similar for pylons, although the end stage functional outcome is lower in that patient group which is, you know, to literally draw them the graph. Well, between zero, zero months or between injury time and six months, you're going to be recovering like this. Mm -hmm. And the slope is very steep. And then between six months and a year, it flattens out a bit, but there's still substantial recovery. And then beyond a year, you know, there's still clinically relevant uh, change in more than half of patients. So you're still going to be noticing lots of improvement. And I, I show them where they are along that, along that graph. So I think it's useful in counseling uh, to patients and it's useful for trainees to understand that trajectory because I think sometimes as physicians, our desire is to continue to intervene or to, to take action um, to, uh, to improve a, a patient's um, final result or outcome. Um, and that, that's a good uh, inherent reflex, uh, but at the same time, we have to understand what the expectations are. And if a patient's having good physio and rehab and they're on this part of the recovery, sometimes you have to just um, uh, leave them to that and, and allow them to improve along their trajectory and then understand what their long-term mild disability may be. So you mentioned a little bit about that you published, um, there's another paper that you published in, also in the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma in 2017 of a, a similar one that was titled Trajectory, Trajectory of Short and Long-Term Recovery of Tibial, or Tibial Shaft Fractures After Intermedullary Nail Fixation. What questions do you think were still left unanswered after your original work that you guys were trying to hone in on uh, a little bit more uh, with this uh, slightly more sophisticated analysis? So what we were trying to hone in on there um, was we we kind of we knew that um, from the kind of traditional literature, the version one literature around intermedullary nails, um, that there was patients that were left with a lot of anterior knee pain and patients that were left with um, issues of kind of with global physical function in those earlier traditional end stages of research, be it three months or six months or a year in a best case scenario. And we knew that at long term, at 14 years, that there's at least a subset of patients that have, you know, ongoing significant functional implications. But what we didn't know is, you know, what what happens in between there. So over what period of time do patients continue to improve? Um, and, and over, you know, at what point can we expect patients to plateau? Um, and really, you know, when can you truthfully say the patient is at kind of the end of their recovery? Um, because those things, those questions are important, probably most important for the, for patient counseling because of the importance it has 
on their processing, their psychological processing of the recovery from injury, which is such a strong determinant of how they do, um, but also important for research. Like I think really, you know, any um, randomized control trial, you see now a lot more randomized control trials publishing, you know, initial data at one year, but then publishing follow-up on the two-year and five-year uh, implications because there's a broadening understanding of the importance of that. Um, so that really was the reason. It, and that was um, kind of the culmination of a lot of long-term work that had gone in from our research staff of really diligently collecting these functional outcome measures over all these time points for five years. What do you think from, from your standpoint, is there anything about either study that maybe you feel like um, people miss or, or didn't take home or anything that you think is sort of a, a hidden gem that maybe doesn't get talked about as much as it should? I mean, I think it's, it's related to that question around long-term disability. I think even if you delete out the patients that have had major complications and reoperations and so on, I think, you know, setting the expectation that these kinds of injuries do uh, in most patients present some mild, but not insignificant long-term disability um, is the most important takeaway. Um, and that's important for patient counseling and, and um, for us to understand, I think, as clinicians. And that also is kind of exciting, right? It, it also then leaves room for what's going to be the next, the next thing we can do uh, to intervene or, or to support our patients that's going to make a difference. So is it helping them with their resilience? Is it helping them with their social supports? Is it some different type of rehabilitation protocol? Or is it the uh, you know, new next best implant? But it, it kind of leaves room for that um, unsolved question about minimizing disability. Well, I think that's a, a great note to wrap things up on and gives uh, everyone in the audience a little something to consider. So I just want to thank you again so much for joining us tonight and uh, being a part of this uh, journal club. Yeah, thanks for having me. <clears throat> All right, we're going to go ahead and start with the Q&A session and Justin Lucas is going to take us away with a question from the audience. Thanks. Uh, I think we had a really interesting question from one of our participants is also a question that I had. Uh, <clears throat> I think Dr. Swankowski and Dr. Tarnetta both alluded to uh, potentially some indications where they would still consider uh, unreamed intramedullary nailing. Uh, and so from our audience, uh, the question is, what are the author's indications, if any, for unreamed nailing in their current plaque? practice. So uh, maybe Dr. Eastman and Dr. Lefebvre could comment on that. Um, Dr. Lefebvre, do you want to ask her first? Sure, uh, I'm happy to. So I, I think the short answer for that is um, I'm obviously been trained uh, in a very reamed focus era, sort of in the sprint and, and pre-sprint RCT era. So I think as definitive treatment in my practice, there's really no role for unreamed nails. Uh, there's some limited role for unreamed nails as a damage control measure, um, certainly in the in the femur, but uh, less frequently uh, in the tibia. So uh, a very limited role. Yeah, I agree. I think it would be great to hear Dr. Tornetta's and Dr. Swinkowski's thoughts on it, but unfortunately they're not here. Um, I think one of my old partners and mentors uh, also did that. Um, he's kind of been the, through the trial of time. 
but he's also he was also thinking about long term. You know, uh, again with the damage control and minimizing reaming and pulmonary complications is one thing. Has it been borne out with the tibia, uh, more so with the femur, but um, still a thought. But I think also patients, or, or he was thinking about patients that may go on to non-union, who may have risk factors. He was trying to still have conserved bone um, and not have a, a big insult in terms of reaming uh, to try to ream up to get stability. Um, I think like Dr. Lefebvre, I think about stability for fractures. And I think for you know a regular diaphyseal isthmic fracture, um, I think that uh, an unreamed nail uh, may not lose much stability um, if it's really undersized. But I think once you get extra ismic, you know, either proximal or distal thirds, I think you are sacrificing some stability. And so it kind of concerns me. I think just like um, Dr. Lefebvre said, uh, I think I'm not really doing much unremailing um, today. Thank you, Luke. I think you had a question for the panelists. Yeah. Yeah, one of the the questions we've you know we talked about several uh, you know classic papers that have really sort of stood the test of time in relation to the tibia, and then uh, more related to anatomy with a little bit of a focus of a more recent technique. And I guess my question for uh, for Dr. Eastman and Dr. Lefebvre is as we are looking back and, and reading papers, and then in the context of sometimes techniques have changed some or implants have changed some, especially when we're interpreting patient-reported outcomes. How do you how do you interpret uh, literature? Like for instance, your paper, Dr. Lefebvre, I think you said that these were all done, you know, infrapatellar on a fracture table uh, nailing at the time. Do you think when, you know, can we apply the same results and conclusions to someone doing this in a semi-extended position with a suprapatellar portal, or how can we use, how can we interpret some of the classic papers if implants have changed some, you know, for instance, you know, Dr. Tarnetta said they were using still some stainless steel nails in the sprint trial, which probably is pretty uncommon at this point in time. Do we have to change how we view any of these papers? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think the two things that have come out tonight that I always think are true is that if nothing else, these big trials treat us so much or teach us so much about kind of pushing the quality and the science of the research forward. And the sprint trial was really such a huge victory um, for the specialty in that regard. And so it set a whole new standard. Um, and I think we've seen um, a surge in extended or semi-extended nailing that is not yet totally supported by the literature as it relates to functional outcome or anterior knee pain um, in the same way that the level of literature comparing reamed and unreamed nails um, or the quality that's there. But I think that's what's coming next. So that's sort of the trend in, in medical specialties or surgical specialties is we see changes in, in practice trends and, and uh, the quality of research follows. Um, so I think that is going to be the next, uh, the next question we see answered by forthcoming RCTs that are, uh, to my knowledge, very close to publication is what the functional implications are um, of infrapatellar versus suprapatellar nailing. And I, I know what my bias is, but it's probably irresponsible to say, but I think that's that we're going to see that coming next. Yeah, I'll be curious to see the results as well. I mean, I think um, just with the, the history of experiencing people with different uh, types of patellofemoral joints in terms of being more or less pliable, um, I, I don't, I'll be curious to see how the results are presented and how they're studied 
because uh, I think it's it's going to be hard to get you know five year data, ten year data, twenty year data eventually when it becomes available that isn't really confounded. I mean, it's a one time event for a patient, and they may have some predisposition or another injury or something that makes their knee more susceptible to patellofemoral arthritis, and so it may be linked to you know what the surgery was, but it may not be um, like a cause uh, relationship uh, directly. And so I think it'll be hard to to get some of that data really teased out. Um, and so I'm just, I'm curious about the long-term results and how we can interpret them. I guess I have a question for the, for the guest faculty here is, is there a paper you were surprised that you would have thought would have been included in this that we should have thought, think of for the next session that when you think about tibial shaft fixation with its measuring nail, you think of this study? Is there something that jumps out at you that wasn't included tonight? No, I don't think so. I mean, again, I think it was a, it was a good look at historical reasoning why um, tibial nailing has evolved. And I think at all the highlighted points kind of get us to where we are today. So I don't think uh, there was much missing. Uh, there's a lot of research about proximal distal thirds, but again, for diaphyseal fractures, I think uh, it was pretty well-rounded. Yeah, the only other thing that's sort of historically interesting or maybe worth mentioning is some of the RCTs that predated the SPRINT study. If nothing else, it's, a, it's an interesting look back at, because um, many of them are not too dissimilar actually in, in the ultimate conclusions or the ultimate findings, but it's just, it's really in the rigorousness of the design and the choice of the primary outcome measure um, and the adjudication of the results. So it, it's a good um, representation of, of how far the science has come. Thank you so much, everyone.